What goes into reporting on religion? There's the writing itself, of course, but what we see as readers is only the final product of a complex process of interviews, relationships, fact-checking, and crafting a story. We explore the career of reporting on religion with one of its most prominent writers, After the Music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through meaningful conversations, we explore the life of the mind and questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your preferred podcast service, and check out our upcoming events at upperhouse.org. Welcome to Upwards. I'm Dan, your host. I read my fair share of news on religion, including developments in the world of Christian education, church politics, real politics, and human interest stories that involve faith. Recently, I got the opportunity to sit down for a conversation with Bob Smetana, one of the most insightful and productive reporters on religion in the country. Bob was a guest at Upper House for an event which shares a name with his new book, Reorganized Religion, The Reshaping of the American Church and Why It Matters. I encourage you to check out the video on our YouTube page by following the link in the show notes. Bob and I discuss how he got into this small, tight-knit field and what makes it endlessly fascinating for him. At the same time, Bob models the curiosity, drive, and professionalism that, I imagine, we all value in those who report the news to us. Bob is an award-winning religion reporter and editor who spent two decades producing breaking news, data journalism, investigative reporting, profiles and features for many print outlets. He's currently a national reporter for Religion News Service. His new book is Reorganized Religion. Please enjoy this Upwards conversation with Bob Smetana. We started the same, we'll start with you, which is just getting a sense of your background, sure. uh, where you grew up, any religious background. And I know I've, I've read your book, so I know you, you go into a little of that there, yeah. but here we'll have the sort of um, it all in one spot. Great. <laughs> so, um, and then I'd love to just move into talking about um, reporting on religion. And um, I know from, you know, reading your bio, you've worked at all these different places and stuff. Um, uh, but um, love to just talk through that and then sure. end with, um, you know, some of your hard-won insights, your wisdom um, that probably comes through in the book, yeah. uh, maybe, um, or maybe something that doesn't come, it, okay. that isn't in the book, but sound good? Perfect. Awesome. Um, well, I'm trying to think, is there anything else I wanted to, uh, well, I just want to say, um, I so my background is I'm a historian. Okay. Um, I got my PhD here. Um, I wrote my first book on Christian Zionism. Oh, fun. Um, and then I have a book coming out next year on dispensationalism. So sort of similar topic, but... Yeah. Um, and uh, the, both of the books go up to the present. So I, I start really far back in time and go up to the present. So um, I've enjoyed reading your stuff just as a scholar, mm -hmm. as someone who I like to spend more time in pre-21st century... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the documents and reporting. Um, but, uh, you know, there's just a cluster of religion reporters where if like, I need to know sort of, okay, how to think about that mm -hmm. today. Um, you're on that list. Well, so, um, uh, a fan of you <laughs> from I afar. Uh, I should say one of my favorite religion stories happened on a plane. I'm getting on a plane. I'm going up to Chicago to, to I think visit my daughter in college. She went to North Park University, so mm -hmm. North Side of Chicago. And the guy next to me is like six foot ten. 
And we, and he's like, giant, it's a giant man. And we talked, uh, Brother Moses. Brother Moses was a seven-day, and he was going to uh, a seven-day Adventist church, which is right down. I said, I'm going to North Park. Oh, I know where that is. Mm. He's going to seven-day Adventist church right down the street from the college. Mm. He, was, he's, uh, he was at Apocalypse Ministries. Mm. He's a seven-day Adventist, mm-hmm. goes around preaching about the end of the world. Right. So uh, Brother Moses has passed away. Brother Moses' son has now picked up. Is doing family this. business, yeah, yeah. But that, you know, he's a Seventh Day Adventist, so they they do the kind of, you know, uh, vegetarianism, health, and the end of the world. Right, that's right. Well, and they're the. I mean, that's the Millerites, right? So yeah. they're the. Um, we know the the exact day. Um, yeah, every, the great disappointment. Now yeah, they the have the kind of. Yeah. Uh, but they still have the kind of uh, expectation that it's uh, imminent. Right, it's imminent. Well, so historically, they they were the. Um, you say, you know, the, the original dispensationalist was John Nelson Darby, yeah. this Anglo-Irish guy. And he visited the U.S. in the 1860s and 1870s. And he had his whole system and mm-hmm. the rapture, any moment rapture, all the dispensations, all that kind of stuff. Um, and this was always, he always had to distinguish himself with the Seventh-day Adventists. He'd be confused with them. And he'd say, no, 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 no. We don't know the time. They think they know the time. Yeah. We don't know the time, but he chose as his area, the, the sort of upper Midwest, what's now the upper Midwest. Mm-hmm. So he would be crisscrossing Illinois and Michigan a lot. And so anyway, he, he would always run into them and he actually didn't disagree. He disagreed on details with the yeah. 70s. He was much more disagreeable about their views of annihilationism, okay. which was yeah. sort of the, the <clears throat> idea that um, uh, your soul would just sort of disappear if if you weren't going to heaven, yeah. that type thing. So he was much more concerned about that teaching than any other end time stuff. But um, that was one of the sort of interesting little surprises as I was doing the research was realizing, oh, he's talking about the seven day, or he's having to talk about it because everyone's yeah. confusing yeah. him with them <laughs> um, the whole time. So um, uh, yeah, they're they're like we actually have a uh, it's called End Times Ministries here in Madison. Okay, and yeah. I, yeah. they're Seven Day Adventists, and they. Um, you know, very good citizens and everything, but they, they have their own thing. And, um, yep. yeah, well, they were, it's kind of a fun, it's an interesting, interesting religious group because they're so healthy, right? And right. Hospitals yeah. and healthcare work and, right. uh, you know, um, vegetarianism and, right. and then they have this kind of like, we've got to talk about the end of the world and here's how <laughs> it's coming. Okay. And it's right around the corner. And then they had the Sabbatarian thing. So that's right. probably very interesting. Right. Yeah. It's sort of a, a mismatch of other beliefs yeah all rolled into a different, <laughs> a and when, different when did the Adventists start what's the well i mean so the so miller Miller's, um was in the 1830s okay. and the the great disappointment was i think 1844 um, okay so the actual so you know there there's a a dwindling after that okay um and they don't turn into the seventh day advent they don't sort of create their own denominational system i think till the 1850s 1860s okay. um uh and then there's it's very common. There's all these breakups and okay. So you know, do they fracturing. predate the like Stone Campbell people and the Mormons? Or are they all kind of in the same? It's era? all the Second Great Awakening. Second so Great it's, Awakening, it's yeah. all sort of 1820s, 1830s. There's just okay. a huge uh, creativity. Yeah, <laughs> um, and all sort of you know that's the burned over district. That's sort of the New York, uh, mm-hmm. New England area. It's all coming out of there. And yeah, um, William Miller was a a Baptist. Uh, you know, a Baptist before he was the leader of his own yeah. little movement. But, um, yeah, that, I mean, that there's so, so many interesting, uh, sects or traditions come yeah. out of, of that period. So, yeah. um, yeah. that's where, um, 
that's where Tocqueville's coming in 1831, yep. I think, is when he. So anyway, he's he's sort of right at the right at the heyday of, that. The heyday of all that. He's getting the. <laughs> Uh, I guess, you know, he's sort of like normalizing that, like, oh, this is what it's like, uh, you're, yeah. you're coming at a very, uh, interesting time, interesting time yeah. to, to make conclusions. Yeah. Well, Nashville is home to the, um, you know, a lot of church of Christ people mm. and there's a St stone Campbell historical society there too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, uh, I had no anything about stone Campbell before I moved down there. I'm like, what are these church of Christ people? Right. Yeah. They're all around the same kind of time frame. Them and the Mormons, right? Kind right. of reinventing non-denominationalism. Right. And what's so hard about getting to know them from a historian's perspective is none of them really keep record. You know, like yeah. that's not their thing. Their thing isn't to, it's, they're not like the main line where it's like, yeah. we are here, we're building massive buildings and archives and documenting every, you know, every issue of every magazine yes. we've ever published. And, um, the you know, the primitivists, the, the sort of ones that are trying yeah. to go back to the early church or the evangelical types. They just have no historical consciousness on this yeah. stuff. So um, I'm dealing with that. With, I go to an evangelical free church here in town, and I'm teaching a class in the spring on the history of the church. Okay. And I really want to make it a big thing about the Reformation. We're an evangelical free church. What does it mean to be a free church? Yeah. You know, that kind of stuff. Um, but I, I do want to get to, like, our exact church. It's Blackhawk Church. Yeah. The, you know, big church in town. Um, we have, you know, good details of when was it founded? Who founded it? I yeah. mean, it's not that long ago. It was 50 years ago. Um, but boy, anything bigger, anything sort of more detailed than just basic facts, it's mm -hmm. just, they haven't kept, um, even think, you know, they haven't kept budgets going back all that way. They don't have like all the archives. They yeah. don't have their first brochures, any of that stuff. And it's like, um, I, I'm, I both love this tradition and also wish yes. it could just sort of, <laughs> <laughs> develop a little so, bit so the, in the covenant church so the free church what's the ethnic background of the free church uh swedish and swedish, norwegian right? and danish, danish. Yeah. so yeah. the same kind of mix as the yeah were they lutherans before they became free church or were they somebody else um well yeah i mean they broke away from the state okay, churches state that church, were lutheran yeah. yeah um yeah and they they uh, yeah i mean it's a pretty similar story to the covenant, covenant church yeah. um the the sort of particular denomination i mean they merged in 1950 it was the yeah. merging of the norwegian danish and the swedish okay. churches um and uh you know some of the unique things very uh, premillennial um that, mm. that was considered a sort of fundamental um when they merged they've changed that since and that was a big deal a couple yeah. of years ago when they dropped premillennialism from the the sort of shared doctrinal statement um, very much like the covenant church, very much sort of de-emphasizing issues that divided people mm -hmm. in the old country. So baptism, Calvinism versus Arminianism, um, who can take communion? Like these yeah. things are all, it's the, you know, significance of silence was what one of the leaders yeah. talked about. Um, and then there's the Americanization process before they merged, they were hmm. still speaking. They had services in their old languages old language, and yeah. part of moving into the evangelical free church was to Americanize, to remove okay. the ethnic identities and to start t speaking in English. And, um, and then their, their seminary is Trinity, evangelical okay. yeah, Trinity yeah, school. um, very loose. I mean, it's, it's not a yeah. heavy handed denomination, but, um, uh, so yeah, that's the denomination. I mean, Blackhawk Church doesn't, it no longer has it in its name, so yes. no one would guess that. And then like most mega churches, they try to downplay any mm -hmm. type of confessional, you know, identity, but it's yeah. there. I mean, if you dig a little, you know, yeah. um, there's still a lot of free church people, older people, but that are sort of denominational people and then all the young staff or, you know, whatever. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, uh -huh. I had the, I went to my hometown church, 
um, right before the Halloween, mm. uh, see my dad and seen him. Uh, my wife hadn't seen him since 99 mm. because of the pandemic. Right. And mm-hmm. he's older. And so, um, we go and I, I did a talk about the book at my hometown church. Mm. So the great part of the covenant has a lot of archives. The university of Illinois has covenant churches archives. So they had the 1950, Ooh. the 50 year history of the church started in the early 1900s. Mm. So I was reading the early history of the church, oh, all these things. So then I could bring it into the talk. Now they're kind of, the, my hometown church is trying to figure out who they are. Mm. What's their next kind of phase? Right. And I could walk them through, well, this is what they did. And this is right. what they started. They started in early 1900s, uh, get a building built. And then when like, like six years, they build a new one because mm. they're like, our building's too small. Mm. And they sell their building to the synagogue in town. <laughs> in the early 1900s, it's pretty, to have a good relationship with a Jewish congregation in is in the U.S. is pretty unusual. Yeah, and actually, they're now they they moved the synagogue moved out to a bigger part of town. Mm. The hometown church did, so I was able to I was talking to this church about, you know, okay, here's what you did when they start the church. They realize, oh, we're not big. This church is not big enough for all the people who want to come here. So let's mm. become bigger because yeah. we have to adapt. And yeah. then they built a new building, and so it was nice to have like. And then and the, the kind of consternation of the mm-hmm. 1950s, uh, both the sweet moving around of Swedish, because they did that in the like 1940s-ish. Mm. And, and that was a big deal, right? That we right. would have lost everything. But in 1950, they're saying, you know, the pioneers would not recognize this world mm. that we live in. We live in such a complex world. And I'm thinking, you have no idea. <laughs> What is What's coming down the road, next, yeah. right? <laughs> but like, this is what churches always do. They adapt and they change and they... Right. It was kind of nice to have all that information. Like to have right. that history, you can say, no, this is what you did before. Yeah. And have it in writing and here's some names of people. This is what they did. And if you don't have that, then you don't know how you got to where you are. Right. I mean, you're a historian, you know. But. Yeah, that's the vision for this class. For our, yeah, The same thing. It's like if you were in a big moving, you talk about in the book, the multicultural yeah. move, you know, sort yeah. of. And there's so much you can learn. Well, there's so much you can, you need to think through even making that move but um and i'm I'm not sure how much i'm going to push this but the idea that uh, it seems quaint now but the difference between swedish danish and norwegian people Mm -hmm. that meant something yes um, for a long time and if you go back to the way that the the people who merged the denominations talked it doesn't sound that different from how church leaders in our church today are trying to talk about transitioning out of a white context mm-hmm. into this multi oh, yeah. uh ethnic multicultural context and it's like th- there's a way where you can tell that story where there's we're not doing something we're not breaking with it, w- there's a trajectory there there's a sort of continuity that this is um how this denomination this church is called to further and further reimagine what it mm-hmm. means to be diverse and if you can do that it can sort of settle maybe some of the conservative angst over this stuff and give people a little imagination like oh yeah i'm part of this longer story of um and we'll look back and see these are inadequate sort of steps yeah. and and whatever we do now will seem inadequate to people 50 mm-hmm. years from now but um but there is a story that we're not just sort of doing something novel for the sake of the culture or something yeah. like that and um, I don't know. I mean, that, that really makes sense to a historian. I don't know how like, I, I other people will, know, but the, the more I work on the, the work on this book made me think, Oh, who are all the people that made the life I have possible? Right. Yeah. All the work that they did to come, uh, to like my hometown, right? My, the, um, that church, I was telling the folks at this church, they were at work 
for 70 years before my family came along and interacted mm. with them. Mm. Right? All, and you could kind of joke, like, you, you just had all time to get ready for me. But really, they were doing all this work because they were doing what's faithful and they built something and they always had this idea they were building something that was for the future and for the larger community to thrive. Right. So they made room for more people. And they now that what they have to do now is to say, okay, how do we do that for the people who are going to be here in 50 years? Right. Because right. what people do now, um, when I, when I kind of give a talk, I kind of tell people they have the future of American religion in their hands. They really mm -hmm. do. Right. Mm -hmm. I want to say it tomorrow morning mm -hmm. because the choices they make now will pay off 50, 60, 100 years from now. And people are depending on them the same way that we are dependent. We are, um, um, what's the right word? We are, we have inherited all this mm. stuff, right? People made a way for us to be part of this. And now the choice is for churches. How do you make a way for people in the future to be part of this story? Mm -hmm. We aren't just doing it for ourselves. Right. And what we do matters. And it's not just kind of the moment. Because sometimes people think it's just the moment we have to do what's, what are, that's all we care about. We don't care about the past. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about, you know, you should have a 50 year plan or a 100 year plan. Mm -hmm. And the way that you build for 100 years from now or 50 years from now is very different than the way you build for five years from now. Now right. you get there in, in incremental steps, but the goal is bigger than you can imagine. And you have no idea if the people that you don't like right now, <laughs> like, are going to be your neighbors and your relatives and your family in, in the future. And people you don't like now, you may do things that benefit them because that's what a good neighbor does, right? right. You build something for the whole community to thrive. You don't just build it for your own people. Right. When you, um, you have to hold those 50-year plans pretty loosely yeah. um, because of the lack of imagination of where things can <laughs> yes, go. Yeah. So it's, it's both like planning for the future but also being open to, um, boy, I, I think back 50 years and what, the you know denominational leaders would have imagined uh, very few of them got it right you know or even anywhere close yes. um <laughs> to where we're at now and um and yet that planning can really set up churches for success in the future too so very interesting so um well you you were talking about uh, your um your hometown so we can start there and uh, just give me a sense of um yeah where you grew up um what your parents did and um, what your early sort of religious formation was like. Sure. So I grew up in a town called Attleboro, Massachusetts, which is mm. small town, 30,000 people. Used to be the home, of, it used to be called the Jewelry City. It's the mm. home of Balfour and Jostin. So if you had a, back then when people got class rings, almost all the class rings in the country were made in my hometown. Oh, fascinating. Was, now they're <laughs> both gone. Uh, but that was sort of their, the, like my brother was on a, little like a like a pop warner football team called the jewelry city jewelers right <laughs> so um uh kind of um about an hour from boston about 15 minutes from providence i noticed you came in here with a boston yes red yeah. sox so, I grew cap, up, so i'm a red yeah. sox fan yeah uh, my grandfather i'm a red sox fan like my grandfather before me mm -hmm. right um so, and we were two, we were a couple towns over from Foxborough where the Patriots played. Right, yeah. So they were terrible when I was a kid. <laughs> but my mom was a nurse at the local hospital. So sometimes the players in like an off season lived in the area. So once in a while someone would come in for surgery or whatever, and she would be treating the Patriots. Hear, mm. about, hear about that, right? <laughs> um, it's kind of a nice town. What's interesting is there were a lot of immigrants, a lot of Portuguese immigrants, some Chinese mm. immigrants, 
some uh, Vietnamese immigrants. So, and I played soccer as a kid in high mm. school. So I grew up around kind of a not. I mean, it's mostly white, but uh, there are lots of Portuguese folks. Uh, the soccer team was you know, lots of Hispanic folks. It was mm. a very very diverse group, which was kind of for me. It was like, oh, this is normal, right? Right. Yeah. Um, and my I'm, uh, my parents are uh, my dad's parents are Polish. And my mom's parents are Portuguese and French Canadian. Mm. So almost every, all of my grandparents are immigrants. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, I grew up hearing Polish all the time. I don't speak any of it, but that was the kind of, uh, we had a big extended family, um, always together. Uh, my mom was a nurse. She had, had wanted to be a uh, writer, but she didn't have any money. Her folks, her folks had like, you know, high uh, grade school education. Her, her grand, her dad was a janitor. Her mom was a seamstress in a knitting mill. Mm. So no money, and their and her grandmother lived with them. So they had no money. My mom and my gr- grandmother shared a room till my mom got married. So kind of you know uh, first generation immigrant, not a lot of money. Uh, got this nursing scholarship from a hospital started by Episcopalians mm. in the fifties, and it's kind of interesting. I had always thought it was a Catholic hospital because New Bedford is mostly Catholic area now, but it was started by Episcopalians in the eighteen hundreds. And they start hospital. Of course, you have hospital, you need nursing school. They had nursing school scholarships given to my mom. Uh, this is in the 1950s when at the height of anti-Catholicism, right? Right, yeah. The Catholics scare they're going to take over. Yeah. They're close to, you know, there's this fear they'd be 50% of the population, and that would be the end. Both right. the <laughs> Christian century ran, in the 40s ran this thing, when the Catholics win, basically. Right. The end yeah. of the world. Oh my God. And then the 50s, Christianity Day is the same thing. When we become 51% Catholic, the end of Protestantism has come. Right. At that same time, this hospital started by Episcopalians gives my mom a scholarship, <laughs> who and her family was Catholic. Um, and so it's like, oh, well, <laughs> they these are people they didn't like, but they were still doing something for their own good. Right, right, um, right. And that really kind of transformed her life, right? So mm. she, instead of being a mill worker in the textile industries in Massachusetts, collapsed, you know, in the 80s, hmm. probably 70s and 80s, but they're gone now. All the mills and mill my grandmother worked at is gone. Some of them became apartments now. Some of them are shuttered. Um, so the, her life was kind of impacted by this. So that's really, in some ways, where really, I, I kind of traced my whole life. Like I went to a um, Jack and Jill uh Kindergarten, which is at the second congregational church in town, hmm. better known as Second Congo in the hmm. basketball league. Right. There's a church basketball league we played in Second Congo, right? I don't know if there. I don't even think there was a first congregational church. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, but uh, and my parents had kind of were Catholic. Actually, here's a kind of funny story. My this is probably more than you even want to know, but it kind of pays the role. My dad, um, my mom's parents, super Catholic, mm-hmm. very Catholic rosary all the time, you know, um, very, very, very devout. Um, my dad, my grandfather was a sexton at the church. Mm. They were in church every Sunday, all the feast days, the whole nine yards. They got Virgin Mary, all the kind of devotional stuff in the house and rosaries every day, the whole nine yards. My dad's parents, my dad's father, uh, and mother had been part of a schismatic Catholic Polish Catholic Church. So there was a schismatic church that was not in communion with Rome. And that, what happened in New Bedford is that some priests from that um, schismatic church took over one of the local parishes. Mm. So they were, they were my dad and his, my grandfather and his wife and their seven kids went to 
um, the schismatic Catholic parishes, the ethnic parishes. So they get a new priest, and he realizes that they've been schismatic. So they say, well, they go to my grandfather. And so my, my dad was, so they have six kids. My dad's a seventh. Dad wants, they want to baptize the kid, my dad. They say, and the priest says, well, you're not, you were not, none of you were baptized correctly. Right. And therefore, no, and, and you and your wife were not married correctly. Mm. So you are not married. You're living in sin. Mm. So what you have to do is move out and become catechized and then be baptized. Then we can remarry you. And then you can move him back on your wife. And then we can talk about baptizing your son. To which my grandfather said, <laughs> you can guess what he said. I don't <laughs> yeah, know. Yeah. And so they stopped going to church. My grandmother stayed uh, Catholic and the other, but they were, they were kind of estranged from the church. Hmm. So my dad, when he's 18, he falls in love with my mom. She's super Catholic. He gets baptized into the Catholic church at, at like 20 because he wants to marry my mom. Hmm. And never, no idea of this. My dad, I'm like, what on earth? How did that happen? But when they're in like their thirties, they kind of fell out of church. There was a hmm. great big, uh, church. We went to St. John the Evangelist church, but we didn't know anybody. And they, eventually became the church that we didn't go to. Mm. So uh, as kids, we went to First Communion, I think. I think we went to our first confession, and then we didn't go anymore. Mm. And actually, I hated going to church. I would get on my bike. Would be sitting, my dad would, when we were really young, my dad would say, like, when I was like like 10 years old, my dad would be like, it's time to go to church. I'd get on my bike, and I would I would uh, ride away. It'd be like 10 minutes to church, so I'd get on my bike and ride. He'd be calling. Oh, and I'd come back like 15 minutes later. Dad, oh, are we supposed to go to church? Sorry. I just for weeks at a time, but he finally caught up with me, made me go to church after I had driven my bike through a big mud puddle and I was covered in mud. He's like, you're coming to church in that muddy. <laughs> and then that was the last time we went. But then we were teenagers. My brother got invited to this evangelical covenant church, hmm. which is a small, they're, they're uh, offshoot of the Swedish Lutheran church. Hmm. Uh, by the time we got there, there were, everyone, a lot of people there were Swedish um, their parents had been Swedish mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and they had a little bit of the Swedish heritage, but you know, um, they were basically American. Right. And my brother went and then I went and we started going to Sunday school and we kind of just found a home there. And it was great. Actually, it shaped me as a religion writer because we hadn't gone to church much. So, but I, the Catholic church I went to was, you know, it's uh, all the smells and bells and not a lot of participation and some of it was a different culture. You know, um, and we go into this thing, and I remember they were singing, um, uh, I can't remember, uh, A Worship of the Lord, or Worship the King, do 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 mm -hmm. you know, it's a big, big, uh, big glorious hymn, with the people marching down the aisle, and the choir robes, and the organ blaring, and everyone's singing the title, I'm like, what on God's green earth is this thing I've landed in, <laughs> yeah. right? And then they, they had communion, they had both the the bread you didn't go up they passed it right yeah and they you got both the bread communion bread communion wafer and a little cup of juice like well, mm -hmm. what is this am i supposed mm -hmm. to take this mm -hmm. how does that work i don't know can mm -hmm. i do this so you know you think about what is that and they had uh kind of spontaneous prayer sometimes and these really interesting sermons mm -hmm. and so i kind of learned like oh this is how this religion is different than the one i experienced so i became an observer and and it's when you're when you're kind of a convert you kind of are really, uh, you have a real affection for it, but you're also like, oh, I'm learning something new. So it kind of shaped me. Then I'd go to a, the, I went to the denomination school, which, you know, there were people from Iowa and Minnesota and other parts were more conservative. They were like, well, you can't go to the movies. You can't dance. And mm -hmm. I'm like, you can't listen to rock music. I'm like, what? 
I didn't know I couldn't do this. How did I know that this was these were even things, right? Because none of that stuff in New England was the right. Thing. So it's like the cultural difference. It's cultural differences, right? Yeah. So then yeah. I kind of uh, I started studying religion there, um, and that sort of I thought I was going to be a minister, but mm. I was I have not I don't have the the temperament to be a minister. I don't think we'll, we'll get to that. Um, I wanted to just back up a bit to so. uh, shifting from uh, sort of a Catholic family into a protestant yeah. family did you notice um you you said you went to a, a, a you know for a congregational school um did you notice a shift in just how people perceived you or um or how you related to <laughs> the broader culture coming out of sort of a minority religion into the majority yeah no there was what was really interesting was um and so in new england the interesting thing is the protestants there you know while they were the majority during the um Colonial time, early right. on. By the time I grew up, Massachusetts was predominantly Catholic. They mm. were a minority. Catholics, Catholics were the large religion. Mm -hmm. So this was weird. Right? Mm -hmm. Who are these people? And it was very congregational in the way that parish isn't. Uh, mm. At least the way that the parish that we went to it. I don't know what other parishes are like. Yeah. The parents. So it was like all of a sudden everyone liked each other. And they sat around for hours drinking coffee. And for a teenager to be um, surrounded all of a sudden by you know, a couple hundred people who just really like you. Mm. And they have youth group. What is youth group? And we have Bible, so, you know, <laughs> Sunday school, and the teachers bring in donuts and hanging out with you. And the, the, we had this lovely uh, first Sunday school teacher I had in eighth grade was Ruth Cedarberg, mm. kind, of a, kind of a stalwart of the church. Uh, Auntie Ruth, we called her. Everyone was, and she, everyone was her niece and nephew, right? Mm. So just this really, really poured her life into people. And so mm. like to have all these people that really like you, it's like, oh, this is great, right? Not only saying that God likes you, these people like you, right? Mm. And they like each other. Mm. And they would stay around for hours. Sometimes I'd miss my ride home because I would, my, you know, people would be like, you're going to have to get your own ride home because. Uh, so yeah. it was really, um, that really kind of, uh, in some ways shaped how I think about congregations, this kind of really tightly interconnected thing. And that church had problems, right? Mm. They, they they argue with each other. They didn't like Catholic. I remember getting right home from an older member of the church, and he's like, "We're driving past the Catholic church." I'm thinking, "These are the loveliest people." He's like, "I thought well, we don't like Catholics. I don't know. I'm not supposed to like Catholics." Right, right. So it was yeah. um uh it really uh, struck me the kind of importance of church as family and mm -hmm. connected and deeply connected and working together and um friendship. And so the Covenant Church has this idea of their magazines called the Covenant Companion. It's from the Psalms. I'm a companion of all who fear thee. So they had this idea that uh, of the and, the and their Sunday their confirmation text was friends God's friends. Hmm. This idea that you are friends with Jesus, right? From the, right. Jesus calls his disciples his friends, and so you have a relationship with one another because of a relationship with Jesus. So the Bible is really important. Holy Spirit's really important, but the that kind of um, very relationship-driven approach uh, was central to their identity, right? So, really community-based, yeah, community-based religion, and I mean that's it makes sense too. Thinking about the sort of um, you mentioned Swedish is the background, like so yeah. these ethnic networks um, are immigrant, you know, immigrant yep. networks um, build these churches, and so it becomes sort of a social hub as much as a yeah, social hub, hub, kind of a, kind of a, and they. All the different churches knew each other. And they had built a camp that they all owned together. So yeah. this idea that they could cooperate together, but they also had kind of a distinct identity, right? They right. 
I learned how to sing uh, Children of the Heavenly Father in Swedish. Mm-hmm. And they sang it at every baptism and every funeral. And I can sing that. The only Swedish I know is the, the, the last verse. Of, it's the first verse of, of uh, Children of the Heavenly Father. Mm. And we can, that's a very famous hymn, right? Yeah. And I can sing that. We will be singing that in my funeral, right? Because <laughs> right. right. uh, in fact, I was at a friend of mine's uh, granddaughter was baptized, and she's a pastor. And uh, we have a bunch of college friends. We were all together, and they were singing this song. It's like, oh, this is it, right? Mm-hmm. I'm in. The, I'm in. This is our kind of. It was just a lovely moment, like intergenerational, you know. And her grandmother was there, mm-hmm. or her, 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 and this friend of ours was there, and her the friends. Uh, children were there, and now that her grandchild is there, mm. so it's just lovely. It's just right. a lovely, lovely kind of moment. Actually, her great grandmother was there, so it's yeah. a very kind of tight knit. Um, there's a kind of sentimental, emotional core to it. Right? Not emotional. Sentimental is the wrong word, but kind of an emotional exist identity core there. Right. Well, that's interesting. I so I grew up um, in the. Uh, I guess you call it the fundamentalist or evangelical world. We were missionary kids. Um, and it, it was interesting because we did not have any of the, um, my last name is Hummel. It's German, yeah. German-American. Um, but th- that was never really a part of any of the churches I grew up. There was not that sort of um, ethnic background. It was much more of the megachurch world. Mm-hmm. So um, so the the community, the the sort of community boundedness was this global network of missionaries mostly. Yeah. I had you know people I called my aunt and uncle just because they were so <laughs> close to the family that were in kenya and yes. the philippines and and that was the community so it was very much different in the sense that it was not spatially any particular yeah. place <laughs> um but it's a yeah, anyway it, it, it played a similar function in though uh it could not play the sort of neighborhood function yeah. but uh you know certain hymns are sort of the things that bind those people together certain ways of talking about the bible and religion mm-hmm. Um, so interesting. Um, well, you mentioned that you, you went to the denominational school. So is that, is that North Park? North Park, that, yeah. yeah. yeah North Park. So, I mean, religion must have been top of your, and you mentioned you were considering becoming a pastor. So, um, yeah, so it sounds like religion was a big part of your life, um, it, it was. as a teenager. And, as a teenager, it was a teenager. And I, I, uh, I was gonna, I wanted to be a doctor. So mm. I went to, I, you know, I went to school because they're a really good pre-med program. That's how I convinced my folks to let me go there <laughs> yeah. and not and leave the state. And then I started taking religion classes. I'm like, this is great. This is so much mm. interesting, right? Mm. And uh, you're learning about, uh, you know, I took Greek in college. I'm like, oh, wow, this is all different languages. Mm. And there are different points of view in these texts and different kinds of ideas of how you live this stuff out. So, yeah, no, it was really, that was the kind of study of religion was Interesting. And I, and I did sort of, and I, you know, I worked at the, they had a very active campus ministries thing. So mm-hmm. I was involved in that. Um, but I also did like a, they had a Habitat for Humanity chapter and a homeless shelter kind of ministry. So we did all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff, threw myself into the save of the world stuff. So really mm-hmm. when I finished college, I thought I was going to go save the world, mm-hmm. which I tried to do. And that, you know, when you're 20 and you think you're saving the world, it's very bad. I mean, some people have regretted it. I was terrible. <laughs> Because you don't know what you don't know, and you just—it it turned out actually helpful. So I ended up running a small nonprofit, a uh, small Habitat for Humanity affiliate, affiliate. I don't know why they put me in charge of it. Mm. I'm like, why did you put me in charge of this thing? It's got a couple hundred thousand dollar budget <laughs> and buildings and construction. I don't know why you put me in charge. I had no idea what it's doing. It's an African American neighborhood. I don't know any of the cultural stuff. Mm. I'm 
just a do-gooder thinking I can, you know, and so had the kind of do-gooder crash against the wall, mm. uh, which was both good for me. Um, was that right out of college? Or yeah, right out of college. Right so out of college for about 10 years, I did non- non-for-profit work. So yeah. four of those years were for Habitat. Um, I worked with, at a college, I did residence life. I worked with people with disabilities, mm. but I kind of went out with this, like, I'm going to. I got my dream job when I was 23 or 24. Like, I'm mm. working for Habitat. I'm running this affiliate. I'm going to build affordable housing for people for the next, you know, whatever years. And, you know, building affordable housing in Chicago is really complicated. Right. I had no idea. I was not smart enough to know. I mean, the good part of it is I had I got a couple years, two and a half years of running a nonprofit. So how does a board work? How does, how do, um, Financial reports work. Mm-hmm. What's the kind of messiness of trying to figure all this stuff out? How do volunteers work? What are the kind of political kind of stuff going on in 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 neighborhoods? Right? Because we had we had some board members who were more important than other board members. Right. I had no idea. So yeah. I learned yeah. all that stuff, which has been invaluable as a reporter about the how the sausage gets made. Right? But, how these things work? Yeah. <laughs> um, I I wish I had been smarter. I but I if I knew now what I. If I knew then what I know now, I'd been better off. I didn't. Right. But right. it was good because I was not ready to, you know, when you are, it was the white savior stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Young white guy, live working in this black neighborhood thinking, I know I'm going to lead this thing to be mm-hmm. awesome. And then going, oh, wait, really? I have no idea what to do. I should be coming here and learning mm-hmm. from people here who are really smart. There are people on that, uh, in that community that I should have been learning from. And there was a, there was a big, uh, um, nonprofit community development organization that I should have, instead of, I was thinking I want to do our own thing here and be independent from, I should have been like, oh, I could learn a million and a half things from these people. Mm. Right. But mm. I didn't. So, yeah. Well, it, tell me if I'm wrong. So the evangelical covenant church, is that, do you see that as a distinctive sort of mark of the church as the sort of service orientation that they, yeah, I think I, so. I feel like when I, yeah, it's kind of like God's it. glory, neighbor's good is a big thing. Okay. It's a big yeah. thing. It's a pietist sort right. of, it's a little bit of like, uh, you can love the Bible, but how do you show it in your life? A very right. kind of, they have a kind of really, and in the 80s especially, it was a very uh, activist kind of, both, there's both kind of personal piety and kind of uh, devotion, but also this kind of like, we're out in the world, we're in the city for a reason, right? We're right. in North, they're in North Park. Uh, which is a nice neighborhood, but they're in the actual bounds of the city for a reason. They're mm-hmm. in the communities. They wanted to be part of, um, you know, so we did things like work for Habitat. We did things mm-hmm. like um, they had a whole thing of uh, volunteering Cabrini Green. They had a, the kind of homeless kind of stuff. There was a kind of feeling. And in the 80s, we were like anti-apartheid. Mm-hmm. Jim Wallace from Soldiers was coming there. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of... Um, uh, a lot of social activism, like we should apply our faith mm-hmm. in really uh, ways that impact the culture and the world around us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you have this nonprofit career, uh, but of course you end up as a journalist. Yeah. So how, what's the connect the dots from? So connected. So part of it is um, I did nonprofit stuff for a while, and I just was really bad at it. It doesn't pay <laughs> anything. So after about a decade, I'm like, I hate this work. <laughs> And I don't make any money. And I'm good at writing. And I like, actually, I was thinking I would just be a journal. I would figure out how to pay, get paid to be a writer. So mm. uh, I got a job at a, um, 
a university, National Lewis University, just on the outside of Chicago. They had a resident slave program. Hmm. And I got a job running that. And I only got a job there because the, um, the university had a, a professional writing degree. Hmm. I thought, oh, and they had part of the um, benefits of working there. So you got free tuition. So I'm like, I chose, I tried to get a job there so that I could get the free tuition. That was the only reason I got the job. Mm. And the, the, and the residence life was fine. It's kind of fun to work with college kids. And, um, but also I could, could kind of uh, leverage that into getting a job as a writer. So I thought, well, I like to write. I'm pretty good at it. I don't know how to do it and get paid for it, but I'm going to figure out how to get paid for it. Maybe I won't make a lot of money, but I'll enjoy it. Mm-hmm. So if I'm yeah. not going to get paid a lot of money, let's do something I enjoy. And so... I kind of jumped into it, and the great part of it was that everyone who taught there was a professional. Mm-hmm. So the the head of the program was a English professor who taught, who um, wrote jingles and ads. So do you know who the Empire Carpet Man is? I don't. In Chicago, no. it's a big thing. The Empire Carpet <laughs> Man was these was these commercials about for Empire Carpet, which is mm-hmm. kind of a, you know, uh, you call them up, they bring the carpet out to you, kind of thing. Yeah. The guy who was did these. Uh, ads for years was just an ad man who wrote it, mm-hmm. but his partner was my was this college professor. So she wrote furniture store ads <laughs> and jingles for a living outside of teaching, you know, English right uh, at a university and being a very good uh, researcher. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and the guy, one of the guys from the Tribune, taught the journalism classes. They had um, uh, novelists teach the fiction writing class. Hmm. They had a playwright teach the children's literature class. So you know, it was great. Hmm. Uh, and the funny thing is, it let you do it. So I did a bunch of uh, journalism stuff, but I also learned how to, um, you know, learn some rhetoric. I learned how to write radio ads, which was valuable mm. about kind of writing dialogue. I, my senior, my thesis, master's thesis, is actually a musical for children because I used to play music too. Mm. And I thought, oh, I was going to be a musician. So that didn't happen either. <laughs> um, but that was kind of, I got like all this experience. They were like, whatever you want to write, you just have to produce a lot of it. So that was a great part because yeah. they were all professional writers. There was some analysis of the work, but the work was the thing. Mm-hmm. So it taught me how to do this. Uh, I started doing some freelance religion reporting. My first freelance, my first piece, uh, actually a piece of religion reporting was um, about a zoning dispute with a local church in Evanston, Illinois. They, mm. they had bought a building and the city wasn't going to let them be zoned. So I went to federal court to kind of follow that. Uh, and then I did some freelance pieces for the Evangelical Covenant Church's magazine, mm. whose editor I knew, and she was like, oh, you want to come work for us? So that was great. I worked there for about eight years. and But then I did a lot of um, uh, reporting. I reported a lot for a religion news service, which is a wire service right. that I kind of um, ended up. And I only, the funny part, here's the funny part about that. So, so like any business... Journalism is a and and religion in general is a relationship business. Mm-hmm. So I I was pretty good at it. I worked with a company companion. Was at the table with the editor of uh, Sojourners magazine, Jim mm-hmm. Rice, who just retired. So Jim Wallace was the editor in chief. Jim, but Jim Rice was the kind of editor who made the magazine go. Jim's a great guy. He's he's we're at dinner. He goes, hey, you should come to the bar with me afterwards. And all these editors from all these other you know, the Presbyterians say the Episcopal today, the Lutheran, U.S. Catholic, and the guy from Religion News Service there. So, you know, I'm, I hang out with them, you know, all night. We have a great time. And then I eventually, David Anderson, who's the editor of Religion News Service, eventually said, well, if you ever want to come and write for us, just send us some stuff. Hmm. <laughs> so I started writing, and that kind of, that um, writing for RNS kind of opened up the bigger world for me. 
excuse me, because um, the great part about wire service writing is, um, and I don't know if you know what wire service is, basically, you, uh, other, it's basically syndication, right? You right. write stories for it to be syndicated to other places. So all these other magazines pick <laughs> Yeah, up all these the, other magazines. Yeah. So the yeah. great part was, um, but you have to write for the, you write for the audience, but you're really writing for the editor of that magazine. Mm-hmm. You know that the top of the story has to be, has to be interesting, quirky, and they got to buy it right away because they're the one deciding whether you get published. You're not right, right. Uh, a staff writer. So I learned to write fast. I learned to write quirky. I find all these funny stories, but I also mm. learned to write like what is the chip, the pithiest, interesting thing that the editor's going to read those first two lines and go, oh, mm. I'm going to buy that. So that I learned that. And then I was writing long form magazine articles, which is the best of both worlds. Right. Um, <clears throat> and then after about eight years there, I got a job. Uh, at the Tennessean in Nashville. Mm-hmm. So I moved to the South and started. Um, so I didn't get my first newspaper job until I was in my 40s. Yeah. And then I was, so I've always kind of, um, having waited like 10 years to kind of, I had 10 years of really, which was good formative stuff, but not happiness in my career. When I got into this thing I loved, I would just work all the time. Right. Because I'm right. like, oh, I get to do this. I have to make up for lost time. Yes, that's right. When I think, I mean, it's interesting. Um, it's sort of like, you know, uh, kids learn languages much better than adults, in part because there's um, more time yeah. as a kid to do that. But also because there's something in our brain where we're just sort of take things as natural and yeah. just sort of learn, adapt to them. And I feel like a lot of, uh, you know, students in college, mm-hmm. if they do land on something, they just learn it and sort of absorb it yeah. through their studies and everything. And it's much harder to sort of enter a second industry <clears throat> yeah. after college. Um, but you did that with journalism. What, I mean, journalism is writing, but it's so much more than that. It's relationships. It's mm-hmm. um, interviewing people and getting sort of doing fact checking. It's doing research, all that yeah. kind of stuff. Was there any part of that that was like most um, challenging or, or sort of the hardest to get your uh, head around or even to to master? No. Well, the, the hard. So um, that's a good question. Uh, a lot of it was the interviewing is great. The kind of research is great. The more and the more I learned, um, the kind of it took me a while to do investigative stuff because my bosses had to push me. I like to do explanatory stuff. Mm. You know, the, actually, the hard part for me is grammar. I write mm. by ear a lot. Mm. Uh, I I play music by ear. I write by ear. So I wanted I want the I want it to sound good when I'm writing it. So you kind of read it aloud. You're like, I, I want it to sound good to your almost your eye, right? You know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. I want it to sing. So I'm, I'm concerned. You know, I'm concerned about. I want to make. Sure, I get all the facts right, but like the, is that the right tense? Mm-hmm. Is that the precise word? Is this you know because in part and that's can be a challenge in religion because every word matters, right? Yeah, yeah. The difference between one single word and another word can mean. You know, the difference between heresy and the orthodoxy, right? <laughs> and for people, you call people the wrong word. So, yeah. so that, um, that, and my, and I, and I, um, because I write for that, sometimes I'll fill in the right word. So, like the kind of line editing, actually, being when I became an editor was a real, was the challenge to make sure I'm not filling in. Mm. It was like just the, the copy editing part actually took longer for me to get, because <clears throat> I'll be reading it and I'll be like, my brain is putting the word in there. Mm. Well, that's okay, but then if you're the reader's not going to have my brain, so right, I have to work. Right. That's the one challenge. But the whole thing was just—it's like it's being 
you get to learn for a living and you get to learn about different people. And cause you're not, um, <clears throat> you're not trying to convince people or win most of the time you're talking about, so you just learn, you know, people tell you all kinds of stuff. Yeah. You're like, Oh, is that what happened? Okay. Like yes, yesterday I, um, I was working on a story about things I didn't, I sort of knew about, but I got a whole kind of new thing. It's about Latter-day Saints. Mm. So I don't know if you know, there, there's a um, big, um, um, there's some new federal legislation called Respect for Marriage, which mm. is basically to codify same-sex marriage in federal law. Because it was just a court case. It was court ruling, but there were some questions whether it might be after the Dobbs decision, may it, it might, um, some of its legal uh there was probably going to be legal challenges to it. Right. So, and the Senate just voted on this, right? Yeah, yeah and it's bipartisan. Yeah. Right. And, and the people worked out, and, and this is largely, the, the rule, the law we're going to get is basically a compromise worked out between Latter-day Saints and LGBT activists in Utah. Hmm. Because, and Latter-day Saints were among the fiercest opponents of same-sex marriage. And they still right. think it's sinful, right? Right. But they were, when they lost... And they got in a lot of trouble and uh, a lot of controversy in, uh, um, when it came to Proposition 8 in California. Right. They put church money into it. They became the face of the people who, who hate gay people. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that's a very missionary-minded church. Their public image is important to them. It, they basically, when they lost, they said, okay, we lost. All right. We're going to have to live with this. And then the LGBT activists in that area, many of whom are Mormon, and church leaders began to talk to each other, kind of working it out. How do we make this work? And they they built a trust and relationship to allow them to find a compromise that would protect the religious freedom of the church, the rights of people, and they made it work. Mm. Uh, and it, some of this goes back to, so anyway, I'm talking to a bunch of Latter-day Saints, mm. scholars. Some of this goes back to what happened when they the Latter-day Saints church form, is formed and they have to give up polygamy. Mm-hmm. In order to be part of this, the um, be part of the U.S. Right, so the right. only church went to war with the United States. Right. Right. They had their all their assets seized at one point. Their part of the American bargain was to say, "Well, this practice which we have theologically, we cannot practice in the real world." So they have a kind of pragmatism to them. Mm-hmm. So who knew that part of Latter Day Saint life, right? Mm-hmm. Who knew? Who knows? All everyone has a different kind of story. So I get constantly learn, learn these things about people. How do they apply these theology? How do they make it work? What is it about their culture and history and language and experience that makes them, um, the way they are? Right. So, so, so one reason why Latter-day Saints were really interested in religious liberty is because they had been a minority religion. And uh, while, like, one of the historians was saying the other day, you know, the Mormons knew that when people came for them in Illinois and Missouri, when they were chased off by gunpoint, Mm. right, nobody came to their rescue. Right. So the idea of protecting the rights of minority religions are important to them and ones that are unpopular. So that's kind of in in their identity which shapes the way they apply their faith. So, and then they have divine revelation from their leadership. So if the leadership says, we're going to do something, everybody goes, okay. Now, not everybody agrees, but they have a way to, they have a, they got more authority than the Pope, right? Right. The Pope says something, a billion Catholics don't always do it, but Latter-day Saints have a much more, they have both a 
uh, I'm just thinking out loud, so I may mess this up. But they have kind of a um, intense congregationalism, right? Everybody knows everybody. And the top-down hierarchy. It's kind of unusual. It is. Yeah, there's not so, many it's other not, examples nobody, in America. People like yeah. that, right? Yeah. So, but that shapes, that's their story. So yeah. I get to, I get talk to really smart people all the time who tell me really interesting things. And then other smart people say, that's why those people are wrong. I had some religion sociologists. I have two religion sociologists who have friends. They've been disagreeing for years. I interviewed one of them. The other one is emailing me. Hey, this is why what he said is completely wrong. <laughs> okay. And that's why actually, before I went to the Tennessee end, I've been at, in the, <laughs> the journalism business for about eight years. And I'm like... What do I do next? I'd really like to break out into out of, because I worked for a denominational magazine and did freelancing stuff. Mm-hmm. So I wrote for everybody, right? Everybody in the sun. And I did some book stuff and I'm like, I need to, I want to like, how do I break into a bigger sphere? And I thought, well, maybe I'll just go back and become a religion sociologist and get a job teaching, mm-hmm. which that was the other thing I thought about doing. And mm-hmm. then I got the job at Tennessee and I was like, no, this is better. Yeah. Yeah. Were there any, um, models for you as a religion reporter when you were either people you knew or sort of national figures that oh, yeah, you're like, I want to write like that person or do the type of stories. You know who, whose um, book I really love? Tracy Kidder. It's mm. actually, he's not a religion journalist. Mm. The novelist Tracy Kiver, uh, not novelist, he's not a novelist. The nonfiction, long form nonfiction uh, journalist Tracy Kidder was like, oh my gosh, if I could write like mm. that. Because mm-hmm. you wrote... Uh, he wrote a book called He wrote a book called Soul of the New Machine, mm. which um, was about the first one of the first computers, and uh, won the Pulitzer for that. He wrote a book called House, which is about building houses, and it turns into a kind of epic battle. Mm. He uh, wrote about Paul Farmer. Uh, this mm. book called Mountains Over Mountains. He wrote a book about people in a um, nursing home, old friends. These mm. wonderful books, mm. rich in detail, and kind of it's like nonfiction writing that is. Full of drama. So I li- I always loved him. Yeah. Um, you know, I had, uh, yeah, so those are some of the, the yeah. kind of people that I liked. It's not the, I know a lot of the religion journalists, though when I met them, like, I was like, oh, I meet all these people. The great part, we have a, the religion journalism field is a very, what's the right word? Adele, actually Adele Banks, who is one of my colleagues mm. at RNS right now, when I was just starting out, I was like, if I could be like Adele Banks, mm. <laughs> I would be, and she's been there forever, right? 25 years, it's been RNS, one of the best religion reporters in the country. So if I could be like Adele Banks, I would be, my life would be complete. <laughs> um, so now I work with Adele, mm. who's wonderful. Um, but the great part about this, the, the religion reporting field is pretty small and it is pretty tight knit. So it is a, uh, what I found in there, so David Anderson was the first, editor I work for. He's like, okay, come write for us. You do a good job, uh, we'll help you. Mm. Right? So there's a kind of collegial um, collegiality to it and a kind of let's help each other out because there are so few of us and only we only understand each other. So we'll compete like hell against, you know, compete mm. like heck or whatever you want to say. I don't know if you can use hell on your podcast. <laughs> we compete really hard against each other and we're happy if everybody other else wins, right? So that was really great. Yeah. Um, another writer who sort of... Um, Influenced me is a guy named John Franklin, first guy to write the, uh, first guy to win <clears throat> Pulitzer Prize for feature writing. He could take, again, a story about nothing and make it into a feature, right? Because he can make ordinary life super interesting. Yeah. He's got a story called The Ballad of Old Man Peters, which is basically about a 
church volunteer who had an interesting backstory and turned into a Pulitzer Prize winning. Mm. So those are the kind of folks. I don't have a... <clears throat> I just wanted to be in those papers and to do those kind of stories. And the right stories, they're interesting. Um, <clears throat> it's funny, I might be the only... I might be the worst reporter in the world because I don't care much about politics. Oh. I get to cover it some, but <clears throat> there's so many reporters who cover politics that... I'm like, they're better at this. My mm. my colleague Jack Jenkins at Orlando News Service. Fantastic. Great. Awesome. Do, why, should, why should I do that? Because he's doing it so better. Right. So, right. I mean, those are interesting politics. And, and so much of religion has become identified with politics that I feel like I have all these other places to play in. Yeah. And yeah. explore that politics is hugely important. I, it, but I don't have to do that because someone else is doing it. Well, how, so talk about that a bit as you've been in the field now for decades. And um, I think a lot of people, when they think of religion, they immediately think of politics or, or even as we were talking about the Mormons <clears throat> about, oh, we're talking about LGBTQ <laughs> issues here and sort of political uh, issues. Um, it, yeah. If you, if you, have you noticed <clears throat> that sort of trend develop <clears throat> over the last, I guess, 15, 20 years yeah. where religion and politics is now that's essentially the reporting on religion is the politics yeah. of religion. I, I think it, that it bothers me. So part of that is, and it comes from a number of places. One becomes, becomes a journalist love politics. So we mm. look, uh, some of it becomes the way we count and survey religion. There's some mm. religion <clears throat> surveys that are about how religious people act. Mm. But a lot of the survey data, we collect religious identity um, information in surveys, but often it's around voting. Mm. So we're only measuring what we see. I was comparing this to, um, have you ever seen the movie Jurassic Park or read the book? Yeah. Jurassic Park, one of the kind of um, hinges of the story is the, and so Jurassic Park, they, um, the scientists decide to bring dinosaurs back to life mm. from DNA. And they genetically engineer them all to be female because they don't want them to reproduce and they think they have control. So they know how many dinosaurs they have. They have a couple hundred dinosaurs. So they only count the dinosaurs they know they have. Mm -hmm. And at a key point in the story, they say count, they tell their um, you know, machine computer to count all the dinosaurs. And they go, oh my gosh, there's many more than they thought. Mm. Right? So <laughs> why they have that, you know, so and it all falls apart after right, that. Right, right. <laughs> but they only count, they only found what they only found what they were looking for. Right. So sometimes we do that in religion. We count and we have devised these categories. So mainline Catholics. <clears throat> like the Catholic, like the category evangelical, mm. which became kind of a um, first kind of uh, a political term in the 1970s, right? Mm -hmm. Jimmy Carter wins year of the evangelical. Mm -hmm. What's an evangelical? So well, some of the decisions that were made in the early polling, so Gallup decides, they would ask people, are you evangelical or born again? But then they would do two things. One, if you were white, they would categorize you as a black product. I mean, if you're black, they categorize you as a black Protestant. So you can only be evangelical if you're white. Mm -hmm. And if you're Catholic and you said you were born again, which would be really interesting, right? Which might be part of the kind of experience, you couldn't be an evangelical. So you mm -hmm. only were counting a certain kind of white Protestant, right. often Southern white Protestants, who happen to vote in certain kinds of predictable ways. Because mm -hmm. what the pollster, and it's important, pollster wants to find political behavior. So if you were to mix, for say, say for example, evangelicals, if you were to mix everyone who says they were evangelical, you'd get a muddier picture. Mm -hmm. 
of that group, ethnically and politically. If you discount white evangelicals, a certain kind of white Christian, well, then you'll get a clear politics, a view of their politics, but you won't, you won't get a clear view of their existence in the world. Right. right. And since all we care about now is politics, and because Americans have, because of the big sort, Americans have sorted themselves mm-hmm. into the two parties so that the white Christians are all in their, not all, but majority of white Christians are Republican. Majorities of everyone else are Democrats. And the Democrats and Republicans don't like each other. Mm-hmm. And they've, people have linked their religion and their um, politics and their culture all together that um, when you start talking about someone's politics, it's as, as if you're attacking their identity. Right. And of course, they don't want to work with the other side because their side would lose. So I do think it, I think it becomes problematic. When you're just looking at the political... Now, uh, religious people are have always been political, right? Right. Catholics and black Protestants and mainline Protestants, they've always been part of this culture, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not like they aren't politically active. And I suppose if you're a journalist, you want to look at the public impact, that's one of the public impacts, yeah. the, the politics of it. It's not the only public impact. Right. So right. I... I um, but this is, a, this is a real problem for the future of churches because um because of a number of changes mostly demographic so americans used to be mostly white mostly and mostly protestant and they're no longer mostly white mm-hmm. right we're we're the we're much more diverse now we're much more pluralistic i'm about to have a granddaughter right by the time she's born her generation will they will have no ethnic majority in the group Whites will still be the biggest, but her peers will all be people of color. Right. That's a different world than when people of color are outnumbered nine or ten to one. Right. So in the past, you could build churches based on, you know, basically mostly white churches, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what we had because we had mostly white people. Well, now as the the churches try to reflect the diversity of their communities, they are bringing people who are divided into them. So if you— if one in four churches are multi-ethnic, which is some of the polling shows, and the more people of color come to a church who bring in a different political identity, that's going to clash mm-hmm. with the other folks. And so then you're going to have uncomfortable conversations. And if you're driven by what they call affective polarization, which mm-hmm. is my favorite term, <laughs> um, which means that it get things done by telling you who the enemy is and why we shouldn't work with them right. and why we have to not. So people with different with same policy aims won't work together because they don't like each other and the and because it might hurt their groups it it may not help their further their groups a pub uh public power mm-hmm. so when that comes into church now you have people who believe the same things and say their identity is in religion but this other baggage comes along and gets them not to work together. So it becomes divisive, right? It becomes difficult to talk about. And race in America, excuse me, is already hard to talk about because, uh, because we're divided. We've been divided a long time. And so people have not said all the things that they feel because right. it wasn't safe. And so now you think you'd come to church and I say, I know you as a human being. Okay, tell me how you're feeling. And we're in relations together. This is great. I think that some of the things you did were terrible. Oh, no. Now that's going to break because we, 
even though we know how to hear other people, hear other people's testimonies, we know how to examine ourselves, we know how to, to say, we've fallen short and confess and be forgiven and then make amends. We know all those things, but they are not actualized, mm. especially when it comes to race or other kind of difficult political decisions. And the world around us is sort of um, unraveling. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's funny, tomorrow we're going to talk. Um, I hope I can preview this on things. Yeah. He's, he asked <laughs> me, what are the three factors affecting church? I'm like, yeah. if there were only three. Right. <laughs> top better. three. I think I was top three. Top three. three. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, I wish I could answer. But like the whole world is unraveling. Yeah. And it's changing. And, and the world that uh, our churches were built for is not exist going to exist in the right. future. So people feel undone, and they don't know what to do. And so they're very tense and very tender. Mm-hmm. And all the outside pressure is to polarize. So it's very hard. These very The kind of human complex human problems that churches are... Oh, let me back up. <laughs> churches and church leaders are trying to solve really, and religious leaders in general, are trying to solve really complex human problems of how to apply their faith faithfully in a time where everything has changed. Right. And they don't know what's going to work. And people are feel feel unmoored and insecure. And other people are offering them easy solutions that tell them who to blame and why the other person is blamed for all their problems. And if I can know that it's someone else's fault and there's an easy solution is to get rid of them and to put my people in power. That's a lot easier than to say, oh, wait, I am the problem. Mm. I have to. And people have been now realizing that, which happens to all of us when we grow up, but we're at least, we're, you know, when you grow up and your kids say, Dad, you're not as great a dad as you thought you were. You're good, but you're not as awesome as you thought you were. <laughs> like, that's a hard thing to, to reckon with. And so when large number of people are saying, you know, you tried to do the right thing. You could, but you were not as great as you thought you were. Right. And some of your things went awry. That's hard to say, oh, okay. Well, then I don't want to do that anymore. That would be better. But it means absorbing and saying you're sorry. And, you know, when you've hurt someone, it's saying you're sorry and not being able to fix it. And that uncomfortableness is really hard. Right. So these are the kind of, um, so I get to observe, I'm observing all this and going, wow, mm. that's really complicated. And people are trying to. Uh, so that's one reason I wrote this book. Not to, you know, I'm not, and I'm an author. I have to talk about the book. Mm-hmm. I want to write it because I'm like, all these things are happening, and people think it's something else, but it's not. Mm. Even if churches did all the right things, they would still have problems. They would still be in decline. The culture was change was going to come for them. Mm. And so knowing that, you can go okay. Now, I, I, sometimes I, I, I describe myself I, in, as a religion reporter in a couple ways. I feel like I'm the, I'm, I'm a, so I grew up in New England. I love New England sports. So I'm like the scouting team. Mm-hmm. I go out, I scout, mm-hmm. give a scouting report. Here's all the things going on out there. Mm-hmm. How you apply the information is up to you. But this is the, what the, what the world looks like and what you're going to have to deal with. And you have to figure out how to operate there. Yeah. Very interesting, uh, very interesting way to position yourself in a broader conversation yeah. as well. Let's end on on this question. Uh, we just talked about sort of the way politics has really become a, a dominant way we talk about religion. Mm-hmm. What's the way you hope? And may, I mean, you can talk about your book here too. Yeah. But um, what do you hope reporters in the next ten years focus on? If if not politics, <laughs> if not 
who you know who oh, are question. who are Christians going to vote for in 2024 yeah. and then tw- what what do you hope the stories are like that we tell <laughs> There are a couple I think one is um I think we will Oh that's a good question now I'm just going to think One thing I hope we will do is to look beyond the politics <clears throat> beyond the horse racing mm-hmm. and to say ask more we do some of that. Why do people act the way they do? But do more of that. Mm-hmm. How are people, why do people make the choices they make? What are the things that they're doing when they're not voting? Mm. Yeah. How are people both innovating and being resilient in this time? Mm. And so that's one of them. Who's going to help us kind of get through these messes? Um, mm. what's, at, what's at stake as we as we deconstruct all these things mm. and do more of that kind of reporting. Yeah. That's a big kind of story. I think, I think the kind of what, what is it, what's going to happen when religious institutions disappear? Mm. Will they disappear? And if they do, who's going to fill that gap? How right. are we going to make that? And then how do people who really just don't like each other figure out how to get along? Cause they're not going away. <laughs> so there's a great book um, by Robert Jones called the end of white Christian America, which mm. is the end of the kind of Protestant white, uh, hegemony in Americans, but the white Christians didn't leave, right? Right? What are they going to choose? When? What's and how are people of different different groups going to be able to figure out how to get along? Right? Because that's a really important thing. And um, and how are they going to build the communities that help people thrive? So I think we if we, and then we need we need a lot of watchdog watchdog mm. right mm. because right now we're losing. This is a problem of journalism in general. The more Watch the fewer local journalists you have, the more people will, when no one's watching, will do the things that people do when no one's watching, <laughs> right? Because there's a lot of money and power out there. And so you can use money and power for your advantage. And if you have someone keeping an eye on you, you don't do that. Mm-hmm. If no one's keeping an eye on you, then you have problems. Mm-hmm. And people are people, right? People are a train wreck. And <laughs> this, is, this is the basic kind of um, understanding of religion, right? People train wreck, how to not be a train wreck is what religion is trying to undo. So more of that, like what is what is really going on? How do people and more deep deeply into how are people living their lives? Mm-hmm. Um, I think we gotta do we have to do more religion reporting on what's gonna happen to those institutions that do disappear. Mm. Like one of the things I'm really, really interested in now is what happens to the buildings. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of a lot of uh Religious groups are now building rich, people poor. Mm-hmm. Too much building for their people. What are they going to do? Mm-hmm. How do they solve that problem? Right? Mm-hmm. How do they use those? Do they use those assets and sort of um, to benefit the community? Do they use the assets to invent themselves? I'm just kind of working on a story for uh, later on this week. Uh, actually, when I'm done tonight, I'm going to work on it a bit because I need to have it finished for tomorrow by the mm-hmm. church kind of like every American church, struggling, older. Uh, they realized they had about two years worth of money left. And so they basically said, okay, we're, we're going to reinvent ourselves. Mm. They sold off their building. They helped their pastor and their pastors get better training. They put the money from the building in the bank because they weren't using it. They sold the building to a school. So it's preserved as a for charitable purpose. They eventually ended up investing in a coffee house with a young entrepreneur who had a great plan but no money and 
it's not a religious coffee house. Uh, the only kind of the biggest sign of it you see it's, it has a Christian influence is that they have the love your neighbor latte, which is a latte you buy that's supposed to be really good. You buy it and they give some of the money away, mm. right? But it the it's a third space. But the building they bought and converted was a third space for the community. It's a community gathering spot, and they're sort of like we've got our resources at work for the benefit of the community as we invent reinvent ourselves. They're so doing dinner church to try and do, and they meet somewhere else, right? That's right. not the but they're saying we had these. We can't do what we used to do. Let's try and do something new. Hmm. So um, there's a lot of that kind of reinvention. But what's going to happen to these buildings? Right? There's right. lots of buildings. They could be lost, uh, and they're in neighborhoods. So are they just going to become condos or apartments, or will they be used for community space? And what do we do with lack of community space? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I just there's just so much really interesting stuff when people stop and listen to each other. So I wish, I, what I hope we have, more people will pay for their news mm. so we can have more reporters to do better journalism mm. because <coughs> we have it's such a rich time. Everything's changing, right? And we're adapting and growing and we don't know each other because there's no one out there telling stories. Mm. And we've democratized storytelling, but it helps to have people who know what they're doing right. and have some boundaries to say, I'm not just going to report on the people who are like me. Right. And who have the the skill the skill set to make the relationships, yeah. do the interviews, do the research. Yeah. Um, very fascinating. Obviously, we're here at Upper House, one of these new forms of yeah. some type of religious gathering space that, you know, really existed in very um, isolated pockets before mm-hmm. probably the last 15 years. And um, so we're very interested in these questions, too, about what's up sort of what are the innovative new structures there are going to be a bunch that come a lot of them will fail or yeah. change um think about christian education that's another area where yeah. so much is changing right now and um you know once successful seminaries are now selling their campuses and rethinking what does it mean to even educate so so many interesting things yeah um, and then how do, you, how do you how do you how do you empower people to to do these kind of changes because these institutions aren't ready for it right i yeah. i i um, I sometimes wish they wish two things. One is that that religious groups would stop doing dumb things. <laughs> Just stop doing dumb things, please. <laughs> and then they would take. Um, I get a little preachy sometimes. I they religious institutions have everything America needs right now. They know how to mend things. They know how to help people find identity in a new place. They know how to resolve differences. They know how to help people do self. Reflection and then make amends for what they did wrong. They know how to build community. Mm. That's what America needs right now. Mm. They don't need more people yelling at each other. Mm. And so, if religious groups could channel their skills and ability to do that thing, then we would all be better off. Mm. I also think that maybe one thing religion teaches is to be more humble. I wish we'd be more humble. Mm. I hear churches. And institutions making these claims. First, that they know everything, right? You don't know everything. And church leaders thinking they have to know everything. You don't have to know everything. Mm-hmm. Saying, I don't know, is great. <laughs> I don't know. Let's work this out together. I need help. I, we're in relationships together. But also, don't aim so high. So I, I, I tease, and I'll probably say this tomorrow. I'll try and begin. There's a very major denomination that wants, that's the whitest denomination that wants to dismantle white supremacy, which is good, right? 
I think maybe you should think about why we're so white. Maybe you think about how do I get some people who are not white come to our church and become welcoming and become more diverse? That is what you can do because you don't, I think churches still live in the world where they had a great deal of authority and they were in a leadership position and they had robust institutions behind them mm-hmm. and they don't anymore. Right. And so like maybe start lower and build up would be better because we have too many people who want to change the whole world, which is great, but maybe change your little part of it and become better. And then maybe you could find some other people who know what they're doing. You could work together and you could build more gradually and build something that's healthy. But I think sometimes people just think we have to change everything now and we're going to be the ones to do it. And it buys into this kind of an unhealthy leadership thing Mm. that goes across and the leadership model that says, I'm the one who has changed the world. And one that has says my capacity is so much more than it is. And I think, you know, when you asked me at the beginning, like my own story, part of my own story is to realize my, the limits of my capacity. Mm. And my children have reminded me of this, right? <laughs> Every time I go along, I'm like, oh, I'm not as smart as I thought it was. <laughs> okay. And that's like being not as great as you thought it was is a real gift. That is a great note to end on. More humility. Uh, thanks for your time, Bob. Thanks for the book. It was great. Thanks awesome. so much for listening to me ramble. <laughs> no, that, that was great. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to check out our upcoming events on upperhouse.org. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Hosted by Dan Hummel, music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Jesse Koopman, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Please follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.